From the letter to the Hebrews, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven, and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And from the gospel according to John, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. For the good news of Jesus Christ, thanks be to God. Those of you who've been joining us in summer worship know that we've been following this theme, our 50th anniversary theme of rooted in our past and reaching into our future. And for the past five Sundays, we've heard for, from some of our most recent seminarians, Sidney Van Dyke, Lindsey Franklin, Anna Burnham, Wilson Hood, and Jazz Buchanan. And you all have seen what a gift they have been and what to us as a congregation and what a gift we've been to them as they have reached on into their vocation and ministry, which all of them are following in various ways. And if you haven't heard those talks, I invite you to go back on our YouTube page and check some of them out because they are beautiful testimonies. Today we have a special treat in that our remaining founding pastor of the United Parish of Brookline, one of those innovative guys in this neighborhood who got together. They were Walter Van Hoek and Don Williams and then Vic Scalisi, who represented the American Baptists, got together as friends and colleagues and realized we should come together as congregations, and that's what they did 50 years ago. Vic wrote a book about it called Merging for Mission, which is out of print, but we have an online copy that we're happy to share with you if you'd like to know more about what this meant and what the mission really was that United Parish was trying to go for back in the late 60s and early 70s. We were delighted last June when, as we were locked down in pandemic mode, Vic joined us all the way from Seattle and was a part of a four-part sermon uh, with our other uh, pastors, Pat Coglin and Suzanne Bolston-Bossert, joined with us and me in conversation. You can also check that out on our YouTube page. We're delighted that Vic has come with us again to share how this place helped root him in the past and reach into the future, and also his understanding of its founding and what it means for us today, half a century later. So please welcome Vic back into our virtual worshiping midst. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to the United Parish in Brookline and to Pastor Kent French. Today, I would like you to come along with me as you did many years ago with Michael J. Fox and go back to the future. 
But we're not going back to the 1950s. We are going to go back to the 1960s. Let us take a look at Brookline, Massachusetts. A number of things were taking place. Rabbi Albert Gordon of Newton wrote a book called Jews in Suburbia. And he said that they had made Brookline the first status-giving community for the Jews. And so as the Jewish people flocked to Brookline, the Protestants fled to the suburbs. And the cathedral churches were emptied. And they became shells of what they once were. The community also was becoming elderly. 20% or double the national average of people who lived in Brookline were elderly. And in our churches, it was closer to 30%. Young people wanted to buy homes in Brookline, but they were priced out of the market. One of my friends decided to get married. He did, and he moved to Needham. And Brookline was also overchurched. There were nine churches in Brookline, three Episcopal, two United Church of Christ, one Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Unitarian. And in addition to that, many people in Brookline decided they'd rather go to Boston anyway and went to Park Street, Tremont Temple, Old South, and Trinity Church. There were many opportunities for people as to where to worship and to where to go, and they chose to do so with their feet. Into this environment that I just mentioned to you came three young ministers. I was the youngest of them, 27 years of age. I'm now 89, so you can see the years have fled. In 1960, Walter Van Hoek and I were both called to our churches, respective churches, Walter to the Harvard Church, and I was called to the Baptist Church in Brookline. And in 1964, Bill Hudson was appointed to St. Mark's Methodist Church. And unlike Doris Kearns Goodwin's comment about a team of rivals, we became a team of colleagues, and we were determined to do a number of things. We wanted to reconcile the people, reunite the churches, and renew the Church of Jesus Christ. And we chose to do so in four ways, through our ministries and missions and morale and through money. When I brought the manuscript to this book to those at Judson Press, which is the arm of the American Baptist churches, they decided on the title Merging for Mission. And the reason they chose that title was because they felt that that was the main thrust of what we were doing. They also indicated that we had a very unique team ministry, and it was a very dynamic and powerful asset to what we had. And basically, that team ministry was, first of all, it was interdenominational, a Baptist minister, Methodist minister, United Church of Christ minister. Second, we developed a ministry of specialization. Walter at the Harvard Church was a minister to community. Bill at St. Mark's Methodist Church became the minister of teaching, quite different from minister of education. And I was at the Baptist Church and became the minister of communication. Thirdly, our staff would be one which was equal in status and in salary, unheard of. And frankly, some of the lay people didn't like it at all. They wanted someone in charge. They wanted a single minister. 
But we proved by the kind of staff that we had, and we, put our, we parked our egos at the door, if you will, that we could work together. We were a great team. And because of that, we were able to accomplish many things while we worked together in Brookline. So what did we learn? We learned the first lesson that I learned in this was that nothing comes easy, and it doesn't come readily. And so that's the first lesson in terms of development of the United Parish, because it took us seven long years, and that required a lot of patience, a lot of patience. In addition to what was going on in our community and in our church, there were seven challenges and changes that were taking place in our society, which affected us in many, many ways. And we were impacted by them, and we also were part of them. So I'd like to take a few moments to share briefly on each one of these items for you, these changes and challenges of our time. First of all, there was gun violence. Does that sound familiar? It was a time when the assassination of President John F. Kennedy took place on November 22, 1963, in Dallas, Texas. There was the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the Baptist preacher and civil rights icon who was shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee on, on June the, pardon me, on April the 4th. And then it was Robert Kennedy who was assassinated in California in Los Angeles in June 6th of, of that same year of 1968. Gun violence was a terrible thing. Assassinations had taken place. Our society was impacted by it, and today we continue to see it going on in America. Secondly was the civil rights movement and the peace movement. This is the only time in this message that I'm sharing with you today that I'm going to tell a story that literally did not happen in the 1960s. However, <clears throat> the Vietnam War took place from 1955 to 75, as most of you know. And when we speak about Vietnam, we usually think of the 1960s. And so I'm going to share this story that actually took place in 1974, which shows you how the division and arguments still continued in our United Parish over these kinds of issues. I had spoken to Congressman Robert Drynan and asked him if he might speak at our church. And he said he would as long as he was invited. So I came to our council and asked them, would they invite Bob Drynan? And there was a big fight about it. And there were many people who didn't want him to come. And they gave me four reasons why they didn't want him. Number one, he's Roman Catholic. Number two, he was a Democrat. Number three, he was a peace candidate. And number four, he would give a political speech and not a sermon. Well, by a very narrow vote, they said he could come. And Bob came, and he always asked me to call him Bob, and he became like a grandfather to my three children. He came to the church, gave a tremendous, powerful, Christ-centered, faith-centered message. And afterwards, they had a dialogue back, talk back, at which he fielded any of the political questions that the people wanted to throw at him. And he did so deftly. He was terrific. And with a sense of humor, especially with some of the people who were very antagonistic. And at the end of the day, everyone said <clears throat> he did a great job. They didn't, weren't all going to vote for him, but at least it succeeded in having a, a good experience. 
Number three, there were social justice issues at stake within the community. I only have time to mention one, the grape workers of Cesar Chavez. The Boston Herald and Boston Globe indicated that I had supported Cesar Chavez and the grape workers. Immediately, I got a letter from Delano, California, from a Baptist minister saying, you don't know what the problem is. You don't know the issues. And if you support them, you're going to have to pay more than 10 cents a pound for grapes. It'll be over a dollar, and you and your family won't be able to afford them. Well, I invited Marcus Munoz, who was a grape worker, to come and speak at our church, and I also asked a representative of the owners to come so we could have a dialogue between both sides to see and let the people decide for themselves. <clears throat> the representative for the owners never showed up. Marcus spoke, did a good job, then afterwards came to our home on Clark Road in Brookline and had dinner with my wife <clears throat> and, our, and our family. My wife, at that time, we had very little, but my, my, my wife made the best dinner she possibly could, Chuck steak, that was a real big deal. And when Marcus looked at it, he said, I'm sorry, I can't eat it. We said, why? He said, as long as my fellow brothers and sisters are in the field <clears throat> eating rice and beans, I cannot eat a meal like this. And he didn't. Lesson learned here. The lesson learned here was that Jesus taught us to care for those who were the least of these, and Marcus was one of those people. The next big issue that came up was the sexual revolution. Bill Baird, the birth control advocate, came to Brookline, and I invited Bill to take part in a dialogue sermon with me, and I got the usual letter. Neither I nor 50, I don't know why, it was always 50 people are not going to show up at worship. <clears throat> the sanctuary was jammed. You couldn't get a seat. And Bill and I had a dialogue. And after that, Rabbi Goldstein, who was the rabbi at Ohabe Shalom, he and I and Bill went to the cardinal's office, and we wanted to meet with him to say, please, take this archaic law off the books, which was put there by Protestants in 1837, but kept there by Roman Catholic Democrat candidate representatives of the State House. He wouldn't meet with us. It didn't happen. And so what Bill did was he distributed condoms to co-eds on the street in front of Boston University, was immediately arrested. I went down to the Charles Street Jail to visit with Bill. The Charles Street Jail is now the Liberty Hotel. I can tell you, having breakfast there recently, it's a lot nicer than when Bill was there. The First Circuit Court released Bill, freed him, and it was over. And what I learned from this was the words of Jesus. I was in prison, and you visited me. It's an important thing to remember. Next was the death and dying movement. This was a big thing in those days. And when I first came to the Baptist Church in Brookline, the very first week I had the funeral of a 95-year-old lady. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about death and dying, about grief and bereavement, as it's such an important issue. And at the same time, I received a phone call from Children's Hospital saying, we need on-call chaplains because we don't have any paid chaplains on our staff. As it turned out, I was an on-call chaplain at Children's from 1960 until 2000. And many of those stories of the elderly and of those children at Children's Hospital are in this book, The Influence of Others. It was important for me to learn how to minister unto these people 
and for our church to be a significant, play a significant role in the community in helping people at this time of crisis, which is for most people the greatest crisis that they will ever fail, they'll ever face, namely the death of a loved one. And so I went and I earned a master's degree in pastoral care. I went down to Columbia University to take courses from the new rising stars in this movement of the bereavement movement, such as Kubler-Ross and Edgar Jackson. And in time, Bill Crawford, who was a member of St. Mark's Methodist Church and president of New England Institute, asked if I would teach the course on death and dying at the school, and I did. And then when Bill's wife became ill, terminally ill with cancer, and he resigned, he suggested to the board that they call me as their president, and I left the United Parish, and I did that. And I founded the National Center for Death Education. I traveled from New York to San Francisco to speak at seminaries across the nation. What was the lesson I learned? The lesson I learned was institutionally and individually, we never know where our journey is going to take us. And that's an important thing to know. Now the last two, and the biggie is next, number six, racism in America. I attended a meeting, does the Smith's bookstore that many of you know at Coolidge Corner, and he wanted all of the leaders he could gather together to come in and study the Kerner Report, and we did, and we found that institutional racism and poverty was driving the terrible things that were happening on the streets in the black communities, and yet no one did anything about it. And we knew that there were three factors involved here, and that was housing and education and jobs, and if you don't have those, how do you live? And you are listening to me today, you know how important they are. So let me tell you how the United Parish responded. First of all, there was a couple at the United Parish, who remembers the St. Mark's Methodist Church, Harry Johnson and his wife Nancy. And they, want, they saw an ad in the newspaper saying there was a house available on White's Place in Brookline for sale, but Harry was black and his wife was white. There was no way... In, God's creation that they were ever going to sell a house to someone who was black in Brookline. And so Bill Hudson went with Nancy to the home. He never said a word. And the people just assumed that they were the married couple. They agreed to sell, and then Harry came back with his wife Nancy, and they could do nothing about it. And so the black barrier was broken in Brookline. Walter Van Hoek came to our staff meeting one day, and he said, you know what? We have METCO. They're busing kids from Roxbury into Brookline and other communities, and we ought to do the same thing at our church. So we said, Bev, you think so, Walter? You're our minister of the community. And so he met with Miss Boston, a woman from, Brook from Roxbury, and they started busing black kids to our church on Sunday morning. And naturally, the white people in our church had no complaints whatsoever because as we learned in United Parish, the only time the adults complained was when it impacted them, not when it impacted the children. Very interesting thing. But we did have a complaint from a black person. Dr. Fajobi came to me. He was from Nigeria. <clears throat> he later went back after getting his doctorate at Boston University to head up Planned Parenthood in Nigeria. And he said, I'm withdrawing Dimbo and Dapo, my two boys, from the, from the church school. I said, why? He said, because those other children are infected with inferiority, and I don't want my kids catching it. Wow. We have a big job to do, don't we? Yeah. The next event was I came over to the parsonage where Walter lived to pick up 
the person who headed up CORE at that time. And uh, Walter came to the door Sunday morning, and he was, he was laughing. He said, you're not going to believe what happened. He said, but, but Jim Farmer, who was the head of CORE, had gotten a call from Lyndon Johnson, the president of the United States, wanted to speak with him. And he was taking a shower. So he said to Walter, tell him to call back. And the two of us couldn't believe it that someone would tell the president of the United States to call back. But Jim Farmer did just that. Then I picked him up and took him to WCRB for our weekly radio broadcast, and he gave a powerful message on racial justice and equality, which is so important. The next thing that happened was, and in this book on page 267, there is a telegram that I received from Martin Luther King Jr., and it said, Reverend Victor Scalise Jr., 256 Clark Road, Brookline, Mass. Can you join with Reverend Andy Young of my staff and Reverend Gilbert Caldwell in a most urgent meeting Saturday morning, October 21st at 11 a.m. at Union Methodist Church, 485 Columbus Avenue in Boston, Martin Luther King Jr. They knew that racism existed in the North as well as in the South. All you had to do was pick up the Boston Globe and see a picture of Louise Day Hicks, who was head of the school committee in Boston. And the, finally, the one on, on race, it occurred, what I call it, was gunfight at OK Corral. And it occurred two years before the actual founding of the United Parish. And it almost broke it. We were at a council meeting. Martin Luther King Jr. had just been assassinated. The three ministers all wanted to go down to Memphis, but we knew we couldn't all go, but we had to have someone represent us, and we decided it would be Bill Hudson. We came to the council meeting and said, we want Bill to be able to go down there and take part in the march and funeral and for the church to take care of the expenses, and Walter and I will take care of the people here at home. And one of the lay people got up and he said, you know, it's a shame. We're so close to having the United Parish approved, to have this come up. But I'm telling you that if this happens, neither I nor 50, as I said, it's always 50 people are telling us are going to leave the church, are going to pull our money and we're going to leave. Well, other lay people got up and they said, if he doesn't go, we're going to leave. And I got up and I spoke for the ministers and I hope for most of the people when I said, if the United Parish has to go down, then let it go down on this great issue of social and racial justice for all. Bill went, and we lost a number of people, and we lost some pledges. But the lesson we learned was that even in the face of losing something of value, you have to stand up for that which is right and just. And finally, we're going to turn now to the ecumenical movement and United Parish, very quickly wrapping this up. The ecumenical movement was a small moment in time. It was like a shooting comet. It went off, and then it was gone. And it was sparked by Pope John XXIII, a great pope, from 1958 to 1963. And his, his influence lasted for a few more years, but not many because the ecumenical movement was eventually killed by denominationalism uh, and by parochialism. But for that time, it was great. And we did a number of things at the United Parish. First of all, on one Easter Sunday morning, we had a sunrise service at St. Gabriel's Parish in Brighton, neighboring place here. It was a great celebration as we sang, they will know we are Christians by our love. And when we said he is risen, the balloons went up to fill the sky. And 
the liberals in our church and the liberals in St. Gabriel's, they loved each other. And the conservatives in our church and the conservatives in their church, they loved it. You could have formed two new churches with the two groups that we had in, in our church. It didn't matter that they were Roman Catholic or Protestant. They were liberals and conservatives. That was, the, that was the issue at stake here. It was a very interesting thing. Next, I was invited to Brighton to go to this Roman Catholic school to speak to the students there. And when I came, I had a little dialogue with them. And I said to the students, Tell me, do you believe in God? And they said, yes. And I said, well, so do we. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? I said, so do we. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? So do we. Do you believe in the gift of forgiveness? Yes. So do we. Do you believe in the Bible? Yes. Well, so do Then why are we separated? We had quite a dialogue together that day. It was a dynamic time. And when it was over, I said to Sister Claire, who was there, now you have to come to United Parish and speak. And she looked at me, and she told me, well, I've got to ask the cardinal if I can do that. She got the approval. We met several times at our home and discussed how we were going to do it. We had a couple in our church. He was a Roman Catholic. She was a Protestant. They were delighted. Filled the sanctuary again with nuns sprinkled throughout. Women didn't speak in those days. And here she was speaking at a Protestant church. It was tremendous. A couple weeks later, we kind of wrapped it up together at our home with dinner with our family. And she said, you know, they always told us that the reason we were celibate was because a family would distract us and take too much of our time away from what we needed to do. But after having been in your home and seeing your family, they were wrong. And now the rest of the story. She left, married a former Roman Catholic priest, and has a wonderful family, a great couple. If you ever saw the movie Spotlight, you know the church made some bad decisions. They let the wrong people go and kept the wrong individual. That's an editorial, okay? And lastly, the United Parish itself. With all the stuff that I've told you, how did it ever succeed? Now, that's a good question. And the answer is a very simple one. Because of the early adapters. Early on, there were people who said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to do it. I, I want to be a part of this. And every week, and every, every day, and every week, and every month, and every year, more and more people, slowly but surely, started. these early adapters were advocates for the United Parish. But lest you think it was all sweet, it wasn't. There were the resistors. I'll just tell you three quick things about that and then end on a positive note. Some of the resistors just immediately left, and some of them very honorably because they were dedicated denominational people. They believed in their denomination. They wanted to serve their denominational. Read the latest Pew report. Denominationalism is dead. We knew it then. It's taken 50 years for the Pew report to come out and say that that's true today. The second category, there are two other ones that I mentioned to you. One was that there was one particular person that was just always raising hell. Whatever the ministers did, we were criticized all the time, as well as the message. It wasn't just the messages that were criticized, but the ministers. And we found ourselves at staff meetings, the three of us, always talking about, we'll, we'll call her M. And it was just time-consuming until one day I came in and I said to my colleagues, we're never going to talk about M again. And they said, what do you mean? How can we avoid it? She's always causing all I said, no. She's taking our emotional capital that we need to use to build this united parish. We are not going to talk about her anymore. 
and we didn't, and we succeeded. The third event was the most catastrophic. Our good friend Bill Hudson came in one day, and he just said, I'm bloodied. We said, what's wrong, Bill? He said, I'm going to have to leave the parish and go elsewhere. Why? He said, I don't mind, you know, getting beat up by the parishioners in the church, but not my wife. And when they treat her with the way they've been treating her, there's no way that I can let her stay here and be treated like this. The mean-spirited people, there's a number of them in the church, have done as just terrible, so I'm going to have to leave. Fortunately, the great thinking and organization and stuff, we had completed it pretty much. But when Bill left, that team of comrades was broken up and it never was the same again. But let me say and close positively and tell you some of those early adapters and what they did, their contribution. St. Mark's Church, Arlene Flowers, started an early risers group where she cooked a beautiful breakfast. We studied together an issue of the day that affected the church and community. We prayed together and we started that week in a powerful way. She brought people together and it was great. And then Dave Mitchell, the great symbolism. Dave was getting his doctorate at Methodist Boston University School of Theology. He spent the last part of his whole life teaching at a Methodist school in South Dakota, and, and we're still in contact with each other. And he came to me and he said, I've made a decision. I'm not going to have her baptized in the Methodist tradition. I'm going to have her dedicated so that she can make her own personal decision about baptism. What a symbolism. And then another big symbolism came from a person from the Harvard Church, Beulah Marble, whose husband, Dr. Marble, was head of the Joslin Clinic. And she asked my youngest daughter, Suzanne, if she would like to come and work with her in her garden with her flowers, and she did. And you say, well, why was that important? Well, I was seen by many as the devil incarnate who was just disturbing and disrupting everything. And to have her, a member of the Harvard Church, have her and someone, such a distinguished family, my daughter and my wife and she became close friends as I did with Dr. Marble and with Beulah. It was really a, a great thing. There's one other person at the Harvard Church her name was Florence Squires. I wanted to fire her. She was the secretary. She was too old. She's younger than I am now. But I wanted to fire her because she couldn't learn how to use a, a selectric IBM typewriter. And then one day, I woke up. I woke up. She had one of the greatest gifts of anyone in the whole parish. She knew the birthday of everyone, the anniversary of everyone, people who were in the hospital, those who were sick. And she would quietly come to me and tell me their names and tell me the dates. And it enabled me to reach out and visit, as I did. I used to make about 800 calls a year to members of the parish. It's a different era today. I understand that. But in that day, I was out visiting people. That's what my dad taught me. And it helped to bring people together. And the final person I mentioned was from the Baptist church, and his name was Tom Nelson. And Tom Nelson said to the congregation of the Baptist, I love my church, and he was highly respected because he was chairman of the trustees. He said, but my church now is going to be the Harvard Church building. That decision was the decision that made for the United Parish because nobody wanted to leave their building. We had waited almost five years, and so the Baptists closed their building, and we all went to the Harvard Church building. And without that decision, without that leadership by Tom Nelson, you would not be celebrating a 50th anniversary of the United Parish. So, 
The early adapters became advocates. Very, very important. These were people who were willing to choose the unknown rather than the known. And the lesson we all learned was that you have to risk failure for success. May God bless you on your 50th anniversary. Amen.